This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight. But before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Kieran Francis, Taylor Bree, Elise Fernandez, Mackenzie M., Mackenzie M., and Stephanie K. Nibs. Thank you all so, so much for being a part of making the Sleepy Podcast. And for anyone who doesn't know, all of these wonderful names that I just read are brand new patrons on Patreon.com, which is a wonderful site where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So if the Sleepy Podcast has helped you get a better night's sleep and wake up more refreshed the next day, consider going to Patreon.com slash Radio and donating even a dollar a month. It goes a really long way. There's really cool perks if you donate $5 a month, um, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So if you'd like to be a part of making the show, too, go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Tonight is actually a listener request, or more specifically, a patron request from Kathleen O'Neill, who I read her name in the 
opening credits of the previous show, Kathleen had a very, very good idea for a show. She is a biologist, and she recommended that we read The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. A lot of Victorian-era science-y stuff that um, is perfect to fall asleep to. So I just want to say thank you very much, Kathleen, for the awesome recommendation. And for you listening, I hope you can doze off into a deep, deep slumber while I read The Voyage of the Beagle by Charles Darwin. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 After having been twice driven back by heavy southwestern gales, Her Majesty's ship, Beagle, a ten-gun brig under the command of Captain Fitzroy R.N. sailed from Devonport on the 27th of December, 1831. The object of this expedition was to complete the survey of Patagonia and Tierra del Fuego, commenced under Captain King in 1826 to 1830, to survey the shores of Chile, Peru and some islands in the Pacific and to carry a chain of chronometrical measurements around the world. On the 6th of January we reached Tenerife but were prevented landing by fears of our bringing the cholera. The next morning we saw the sun rise behind the rugged outline of the Grand Canary Island and suddenly illuminate the peak of Tenerife whilst the lower parts were veiled in fleecy clouds. This was the first of many delightful days never to be forgotten. On the 16th of January, 1832, we anchored at Porto Praia in St. Jago, the chief island of the Cape de Verde archipelago. The neighborhood of Porto Praia viewed from the sea, wears a desolate aspect. The volcanic fires of a past age and the scorching heat of a tropical sun have in most places rendered the soil unfit for vegetation. The country rises in successive steps of tableland interspersed with some truncate conical hills and the horizon is bounded by an irregular chain more lofty mountains. The scene, as beheld through the hazy atmosphere of this climate, is one of great interest, if indeed a person fresh from the sea and who has just walked for the first time in a grove of coconut trees can be a judge of anything but his own happiness. The island would generally be considered as very uninteresting 
but to anyone accustomed only to an English landscape, the novel aspect of an utterly sterile land possesses a grandeur which more vegetation might spoil. A single green leaf can scarcely be discovered over wide tracts of the lava plains, yet flocks of goats, together with a few cows, contrive to exist. It rains very seldom, but during a very short portion of the year, heavy torrents fall, and immediately afterwards a light vegetation springs out of every crevice. This soon withers, and upon such naturally formed hay the animals live. It did not now rain for an entire year. When the island was discovered, the immediate neighborhood of Porto Praia was clothed with trees, the reckless destruction of which has caused here, as at St. Helena, and at some of the Canary Islands, almost entire sterility. The broad, flat-bottomed valleys, many of which serve during a few days only in the season as watercourses, are clothed with thickets of leafless bushes. Few living creatures inhabit these valleys. The commonest bird is a kingfisher, which tamely sits on the branches of the castor oil plant and thence darts on grasshoppers and lizards. It is brightly colored, but not so beautiful as the European species. In its flight, manners, and place of habitation, which is generally in the driest valley, there's also a wide difference. One day, two of the officers and myself rode to Riviera Grande, a village a few miles eastward of Porto Praia. Until we reached the valley of St. Martin, the country presented its usual dull brown appearance. But here, a very small rill of water produces a most refreshing margin of luxuriant vegetation. In the course of an hour, we arrived at Riviera Grande and were surprised at the sight of a large ruined fort and cathedral. This little town, before its harbor was filled up, was the principal place in the island and now presents a melancholy but very picturesque appearance. Having procured a black padre for a guide and a Spaniard who had served in the Peninsular War as an interpreter, we visited a collection of buildings, of which an ancient church formed the principal part. It is here the governors and captain generals of the islands have been buried. Some of the tombstones recorded dates of the 16th century. The heraldic ornaments were the only things in this retired place that reminded us of Europe. The church, or chapel, formed one side of the quadrangle, in the middle of which a large clump of bananas were growing. On another side was a hospital, containing about a dozen miserable-looking inmates. We returned to the venda to eat our dinners. A considerable number of men, women, and children, all as black as jet, 
collected to watch us. Our companions were extremely merry, and everything we said or did was followed by their hearty laughter. Before leaving the town, we visited the cathedral. It does not appear so rich as the smaller church, but boasts of a little organ, which sent forth singularly inharmonious cries. We presented the black priest with a few shillings, then the Spaniard, patting him on the head, said, with much candor, he thought his color made no great difference. We then returned, as fast as the ponies would go, to Porto Praia. Another day we rode to the village of St. Domingo, situated in the center of the island. On a small plain which we crossed, a few stunted acacias were growing. Their tops had been bent by the steady trade wind in a singular manner, some of them even at right angles to their trunks. The direction of the branches was exactly northeast by north, and southwest by south, and these natural veins must indicate the prevailing direction of the force of the trade wind. The traveling had made so little impression on the barren soil that we here missed our track and took that to Fuentes. This we did not find out till we arrived there, and we were afterwards glad of our mistake. Fuentes is a pretty village with a small stream, and everything appeared to prosper well, excepting, indeed, that which ought to do so most, its inhabitants. The children, completely naked and looking very wretched, were carrying bundles of firewood half as big as their own bodies. Near Fuentes we saw a large flock of guinea fowl, probably fifty or sixty in number, they were extremely wary and could not be approached. They avoided us, like partridges on a rainy day in September, running with their heads cocked up, and if pursued they readily took to the wing. The scenery of St. Domingo possesses a beauty totally unexpected from the prevalent gloomy character of the rest of the island. The village is situated at the bottom of a valley, bounded by lofty and jagged walls of stratified lava. The black rocks afford a most striking contrast with the bright green vegetation which follows the banks of a little stream of clear water. It happened to be a grand feast day, and the village was full of people. On our return, we overtook a party of about twenty young girls dressed in excellent taste, their black skins and snow-white linen being set off by colored turbans and large shawls. As soon as we approached near, they all suddenly turned around, uncovering the path with their shawls, sung with great energy a wild song, beating time with their hands upon their legs. We threw them some vintums, which were received with screams of laughter, and we left them redoubling the noise of their song. 
One morning the view was singularly clear, the distant mountains being projected with the sharpest outline on a heavy bank of dark blue clouds. Judging from the appearance, and from similar cases in England, I supposed that the air was saturated with moisture. The fact, however, turned out quite the contrary. The hygrometer gave a difference of 29.6 degrees between the temperature of the air and the point at which dew was precipitated. This difference was nearly double that which I had observed on the previous morning. This unusual degree of atmospheric dryness was accompanied by continual flashes of lightning. It is not an uncommon case thus to find a remarkable degree of aerial transparency with such a state of weather. Generally the atmosphere is hazy and this is caused by the falling of impalpably fine dust which was found to have slightly injured the astronomical instruments. The morning before we anchored at Porto Praia, I collected a little packet of this brown-colored fine dust, which appeared to have been filtered from the wind by the gauze of the vane at the masthead. Mr. Lyle has also given me four packets of dust, which fell on a vessel a few hundred miles northward of these islands. Professor Ehrenberg finds that this dust consists in great part of infusoria with siliceous fields and of the siliceous tissue of plants. In five little packets which I sent him, he has ascertained no less than 67 different organic forms. The infusoria, with the exception of two marine species, are all inhabitants of fresh water. I have found no less than fifteen different accounts of dust having fallen on vessels when far out in the Atlantic. From the direction of the wind, whenever it has fallen, and from its having always fallen during those months when the Harmattan is known to raise clouds of dust, high into the atmosphere, we may feel sure that it all comes from Africa. It is, however, a very singular fact that although Professor Ehrenberg knows many species of infusoria peculiar to Africa, he finds none of these in the dust which I sent him. On the other hand, he finds it in two species which hitherto he knows as living only in South America. The dust falls in such quantities as to dirty everything on board and to hurt people's eyes. Vessels even have run on shore owing to the obscurity of the atmosphere. It has often fallen on ships on several hundred and even more than a thousand miles from the coast of Africa and at points sixteen hundred miles distant in a north and south direction. In some dust which was collected on a vessel 300 miles from the land, I was much surprised to find particles of stone above the thousandth of an inch square mixed with finer matter. After this fact, one need not be surprised at the diffusion 
of the far lighter and smaller sporules of cryptogamic plants. The geology of this island is the most interesting part of its natural history. On entering the harbor, a perfectly horizontal white band in the face of a sea cliff may be seen running from some miles along the coast and at the height of about 45 feet above the water. Upon examination, this white stratum is found to consist of calcareous matter with numerous shells embedded, most or all of which now consist on the neighboring coast. It rests on ancient volcanic rocks and has been covered by a stream of basalt, which must have entered the sea when the white shelly bed was lying at the bottom. It is interesting to trace the changes produced by the heat of the overlaying lava on the friable mass, which in parts has been converted into crystalline limestone, and in other parts into a compact spotted stone where the limestone has been caught up by the scoriaceous fragments of the lower surface of the stream. It is converted into groups of beautifully radiated fibers resembling aragonite. The beds of lava rise in successive gently sloping planes towards the interior, whence the deluges of melted stone have originally proceeded. Within historical times, no signs of volcanic activity have, I believe, been manifested in any part of St. Jago. Even the form of a crater can but rarely be discovered on the summits of the many red cindery hills, yet the more recent streams can be distinguished on the coast, forming lines of cliffs on less height, but stretching out in advance of those belonging to an older series, the height of the cliffs thus affording a rude measure of the age of the streams. During our stay, I observed the habits of some marine animals. A large aplysia is very common. This sea slug is about five inches long and is of a dirty yellowish color veined with purple. On each side of the lower surface or foot, there is a broad membrane which appears sometimes to act as a ventilator in causing a current of water to flow over the dorsal branchiae or lungs. It feeds on the delicate seaweed which grow among the stones in muddy and shallow water, and I found in its stomach several small pebbles, as in the gizzard of a bird. This slug, when disturbed, emits a very fine purplish-red fluid, which stains the water for a space of a foot around. Besides this means of defense, an accurate secretion, which is spread over its body, causes a sharp, stinging sensation, similar to that produced by the Vesalia, or Portuguese man of war. I was much interested, on several occasions, by watching the habits of an octopus or a cuttlefish. Although common in the pools of water left by the retiring tide, these animals were not easily caught 
By means of their long arms and suckers, they could drag their bodies into very narrow crevices, and when thus fixed, it required great force to remove them. At other times they darted, tail first, with the rapidity of an arrow, from one side of the pool to the other, and at the same instant, discoloring the water with a dark chestnut-brown ink. These animals also escaped detection by a very extraordinary, chameleon-like power of changing their color. They appear to vary their tints according to the nature of the ground over which they pass. When in deep water, their general shade was brownish-purple, and when placed on land, or in shallow water, this dark tint changed into one of a yellowish green. The color, examined more carefully, was a French gray, with numerous minute spots of bright yellow. The form of these varied in intensity. The latter entirely disappeared and appeared again by turns. These changes were effected in such a manner that clouds, varying in tint between a hyacinth red and a chestnut brown, were continually passing over the body. Any part, being subjected to a slight shock of galvanism, became an almost... <laughs> Any part, being subjected to a slight shock of galvanism, became almost black. A similar effect, but in a less degree was produced by scratching the skin with a needle. These clouds, or blushes as they may be called, are said to be produced by the alternate expansion and contraction of minute vesicles containing variously colored fluids. This cuttlefish displayed its chameleon-like power during both the act of swimming and whilst remaining stationary at the bottom. I was much amused by the various arts to escape detection used by one individual, which seemed fully aware that I was watching it. Remaining for a time motionless, it would then stealthily advance an inch or two, like a cat after a mouse, sometimes changing its color. It thus proceeded, till having gained a deeper part, it darted away, leaving a dusky train of ink to hide the hole into which it had crawled. While looking for marine animals, with my head about two feet above the rocky shore, I was more than once saluted by a jet of water, accompanied by a slight grating noise. At first, I could not think what it was, but afterwards I found that it was this cuttlefish, which, though concealed in a hole, thus often led to its discovery. That it possesses the power of ejecting water, there is no doubt, and it appeared to me that it could certainly take good aim by directing the tube or siphon on the underside of its body. From the difficulty which these animals have in carrying their heads, they cannot crawl with ease when placed on the ground. I observed that one which I kept in the cabin was slightly phosphorescent in the dark. 
St. Paul's Rock. In crossing the Atlantic, we hove to during the morning of February 16th, close to the island of St. Paul's. This cluster of rocks is situated in zero degrees, 58 north latitude, and 29 degrees, 15 west longitude. It is 540 miles distant from the coast of America and 350 from the island of Fernando Norano. The highest point is only 50 feet above the level of the sea, and the entire circumference is under three quarters of a mile. This small point rises abruptly out of the depths of the ocean. Its mineralogical constitution is not simple. In some parts, the rock is of a charity, in others of a felspathic nature, including thin veins of serpentine. It is a remarkable fact that all the many small islands lying far from any continent in the Pacific, Indian, and Atlantic Oceans, with the exception of the Seychelles and this little point of rock, are, I believe, composed either of coral or of erupted matter. The volcanic nature of these oceanic islands is evidently an extension of that law and the effect of those same causes, whether chemical or mechanical, from which it results that a vast majority of the volcanoes now in action stand either near sea coasts or as islands in the midst of the sea. The rocks of St. Paul appear from a distance of a brilliantly white color. This is partly owing to the dung of a vast multitude of seafoam, and partly to a coating of a hard, glossy substance with a pearly luster, which is intimately united to the surface of the rocks. This, when examined with a lens, is found to consist of numerous exceedingly thin layers, its total thickness being about the tenth of an inch. It contains much animal matter, and its origin, no doubt, is due to the action of the rain or spray on the bird's dung. Below some small masses of guano at Ascension and on the Albrojos Islands, I found certain stalactitic branching bodies formed apparently in the same manner as the thin white coating on these rocks. The branching bodies so closely resembled in general appearance certain malapore a family of hard, calcareous sea plants that in lately looking hastily over my collection I do not perceive the difference. The globular extremities of the branches are of a pearly texture, like the enamel of teeth, but so hard as just a scratch plate glass. I may here mention that on a part of the coast of Ascension, where there is a vast accumulation of shelly sand, an incrustation is deposited on the tidal rocks by the water of the sea, resembling, as represented in the woodcut, certain cryptogamic plants, often seen on damp walls. The surface of the fronds is beautifully glossy, 
and those parts form where fully exposed to the light are of a jet black color, but those shaded under ledges are only gray. I have shown specimens of this incrustation to several geologists, and they all thought that they were of volcanic and igneous origin. In its hardness and translucency, in its polish equal to that of the finest saliva shell, and the bad smell given out and loss of color under the blowpipe, it shows a close similarity with living seashells. Moreover, in seashells, it is known that the parts habitually covered and shaded by the mantle of the animal are of a paler color than those fully exposed to the light, just as is the case with this incrustation. When we remember that lime, either as a phosphate or carbonate, enters into the composition of the hard parts, such as bones and shells of all living animals, it is an interesting physiological fact to find substances harder than the enameled teeth and the colored surfaces, as well as polished as those of a fresh shell, were formed through inorganic means from dead organic matter, mocking also in shape some of the lower vegetable productions. We found on St. Paul's only two kinds of birds, the booby and the naughty. The former is a species of gannet, and the latter a tern. Both are of a tame and stupid disposition, and are so unaccustomed to visitors that I could have killed any number of them with my geological hammer. The booby lays her eggs on the bare rock, and the tern makes a very simple nest with seaweed. By the side of many of these nests, a small flying fish was placed, which I suppose had been brought by the male bird for its partner. It was amusing to watch how quickly a large and active crab, Graspus, which inhabits the crevices of the rock, stole the fish from the side of the nest as soon as we had disturbed the parent birds. Sir W. Simmons, one of the few persons who have landed here, informs me that he saw the crabs dragging even the young birds out of their nests and devouring them. Not a single plant, not even a lichen, grows on the islet. Yet, it is inhabited by several insects and spiders. The following list completes, I believe, the terrestrial fauna, a fly living on the booby and a tick which must have come here as a parasite on the birds, a small brown moth belonging to a genus that feeds on feathers, a beetle and a woodlouse from beneath the dung, and lastly, numerous spiders, which I suppose prey on these small attendants and scavengers of the waterfowl. The often repeated description of the stately palm and the other noble tropical plants, then birds, and lastly man, taking possession of the coral islands as soon as formed in the Pacific, is probably not correct. 
I fear it destroys the poetry of this story. That feather and dirt feeding the parasitic insects and spiders should be the first inhabitants of newly formed oceanic land. The smallest rock in the tropical seas, by giving a foundation for the growth of innumerable kinds of seaweed and compound animals, supports likewise a large number of fish. The sharks and the seamen in the boats maintained a constant struggle, which should secure the greater share of the prey caught by the fishing lines. I have heard that a rock near the Bermudas, lying many miles out at sea, and at a considerable depth, was first discovered by the circumstance of fish having been observed in the neighborhood. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.